This is Founder Coffee. Every two weeks, I have coffee with a different founder. We discuss life, passions, learnings in an intimate talk, getting to know the person behind the company. For this ninth episode, I had a chat with Patrick Campbell, co-founder of ProfitWell, the company that helps you with analyzing and boosting your subscription revenues. Before founding ProfitWell, Patrick had quite the well-rounded career. He was a coffee master at Starbucks, a strategist at Google, and an intelligence analyst for the US Defense Department. We chat about his animal cracker hustle, US politics, optionality, and about solving the world's problems. Welcome to Founder Coffee. Hi, Patrick. It's great to have you on Founder Coffee. Yeah, it's great to be here. You're founder of, uh, I have to say, uh, ProfitWell now, uh, do I? It, it used to be priced intelligently, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what what made you make that switch? Yeah, great question. I So we switched over from, so we, we still have the Price Intelligently product, we still have the brand, but mm-hmm. we started releasing other products in the subscription space. And so... Uh, ProfitWell is a little bit more all-inclusive versus uh, just price intelligently, which sounds like pricing. And so the short yeah. answer is basically because we have uh, we have multiple different products to help subscription businesses now. Yeah. So what does ProfitWell do in 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 short? Yeah. In short, it's you know we basically help subscription companies grow, and we do that by giving away free subscription financial metrics. So it plugs right into your billing system, and you get essentially uh, you know all your MRR churn, all that stuff for free. And then we help you find problems in your business, and some of those problems we sell products to help, and other of those problems we just have a lot of really great resources to uh, to basically help you solve them. Yeah. So you plug into things like Stripe and Braintree. Uh, and then you show us like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, there's one product that checks whether credit cards are going to fail somehow or what is that? Uh, mm-hmm. and then, and then has a sort of marketing automation based on that or how should yeah. I see that? Yeah. So it's, it's a, um, it's a customer success product that basically helps reduce your churn algorithmically. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot of different reasons that a product churns, um, you know, everything from credit cards failing all the way to as, as you know, as, as you know, many, you know, people just not wanting your product. And so we started it off with just attacking credit card delinquencies. And then from there, um, yeah. we've been basically, uh, going after active churn as well. So, and, and what's cool about it is you just turn it on and it does the work for you. You don't have to, you know, really do anything. We're using all of our data to basically, uh, crank from there. Yeah. Do, do you have a front end script now as well? One that tracks clicks and stuff or. So we don't quite, you meaning like, uh, what do you mean by front end script? I'm yeah. For instance, something that we would put into Salesflare and then we see based on clicks, uh, who is probably going to convert, who is probably going to churn this kind of things. So we are coming out with engagement data for free right now. So that'll cool. help you basically determine who's going to churn and, and some other pieces. We're going to be attacking, um, you know, top of the funnel data soon. So our whole vision, just to kind of go a little bit deeper, is basically to have um, complete end-to-end analytics for free. So basically from the top of the funnel all the way through your engagement data. Mm-hmm. And basically allow you to see everything connected in a nice... Um, you know, comfortable and, and kind of turnkey manner, um, all focused yeah. on subscribers. Yeah. How, how did you get in, get into this? Did you, did you have a SaaS business before? 
So not really. I, uh, I worked at um, some big tech. So I worked, I worked for mm-hmm. the intelligence community in DC and in Washington DC here in the States. And then I worked uh, at Google actually in Boston. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's one of those things I, I did work at another startup, but they weren't a SaaS company um, in between Google and price intelligently. But really I, I was working on kind of econ modeling and pricing and then what ended up happening is, you know, just obviously the customer as well as the data just kind of started guiding me uh, in this direction. Yeah. Yeah. So this is your second startup. Uh, this is, well, this is my first uh, company that's mine. Um, this is the ah, second okay. startup. Yeah. So yeah. the second startup I've worked at. Uh, the, the one previously was a very traditional kind of venture backed company, you know, raised. Mm-hmm. 30, $40 million. You know, I was there when we were, we were about 60 people up until we were about a hundred people. And cool. yeah, it's just a different, different type of vibe. So you, you, you left Google for this company or. Yeah. I, so I, when I was at Google, I, you know, was, um, you know, was cranking on some really cool stuff and, you know, made them a ton of money. And, mm-hmm. um, it was one of those things where it was, uh, didn't make sense uh, to work my ass off and not get some of that money. And so <laughs> it was one of those yeah. things where and I was also kind of, I mean, it wasn't all about the money. It was, they were, there was a project I worked on that, you know, did really, really well. And just for different priorities sake, you know, and they made the right decision, but for different priorities sake, they were going to shut the project down. And to me, it was like, well, you know, if, if I'm going to work my butt off for this type of work, you know, I can do it on my own. And, um, naively or, or very intelligently. Um, I don't think I was making a conscious choice as much as I would want to believe at the time, but yeah. I, uh, I knew I had never, you know, started a company and, and I did some little things when I was a kid, but I ended up, um, you know, going and working for another company, which is great. Cause I think if I would have started a company right outside of Google, um, it mm-hmm. may have been a success, but probably wouldn't have been. Um, cause I just didn't, just didn't know enough. Yeah. You, you mentioned that you did some things as a kid. Uh, where did you grow up and what kind of things did you do? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Wisconsin, which is, uh, I know there's you know, some international folks who might not know where that is. It's kind of like central um, U.S. It's north of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I grew up, you know, just in a nice farm community. But um, I did a lot of the little things that, um, you know, you might do like a you know, lemonade stand, paper route. <laughs> Uh, you know, I had a little recycling business where I would go and, you know, tell people, oh, I'll take your recycling off your hands. And then I would, you know, get the money for the recycling. And even, I mean, I think the first experience I had, um, so my parents, you know, were blue collar. They worked, you know, every day and they worked long hours and my mom traveled a lot. And so from a really early age, I had to basically like make my own lunch for school and do a bunch of other things. And I remember it was kind of out of laziness, but also out of, I think, entrepreneurship. I would, Mm -hmm. you know, just take a giant bag of animal crackers and then basically trade uh, other kids for different things in their lunches for animal crackers (laughs) um, to basically create my own lunch um, without having to make it. So that was my first, uh, first four away into entrepreneurship. I think when I was in like, you know, I don't know, low grades, like third through fifth grade kind of a thing. How old were you then? Third or fifth grade? Um, gosh, I don't know. I think it was, I think you start going here. So I had to be, I was definitely under 10. So like, five to eight years old <laughs> and you were already creating your own lunch by by trading 
Well, I was trying and, and that was the first kind of, you know, some days no one wanted to trade, you know, no one wanted any animal crackers. And so it was one of those yeah. things where, um, you know, needed to, uh, needed to just eat animal crackers for that day. Were there tasty animal crackers? Or? Yeah, they were, I don't know. I was obsessed with animal crackers when I was a kid. I don't know why, but like they would get <laughs> big, there's this place called like Sam's club in the States. Uh, yeah. and it's like a, I think it's in Europe as well, but, um, they would just sell these giant bags of animal crackers, just like enormous bags because they were bulk. And uh, my parents, we bought in bulk, you know, to save money. And uh, it was one of those things where it was like, oh, that's, you know, that, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of supply that I can, uh, you know, yeah. go after demand with. Are, are, are there any of these things you did afterwards as well uh, before you went to college and, and working and all those kind of things? Um, I have, I've always been, I've worked since a really young age. So in the States, uh, I think now, I, I believe when I was growing up, you couldn't, um, you couldn't officially work. Like you couldn't, you know, be on the payroll uh, mm -hmm. until you were, I think 14. And I remember that really bothered me because I wanted a job. Um, little yeah. did I know, uh, but, uh, it was one of those things where, you know, I wanted, I wanted capital cause I lived in, you know, the rural, you know, world and, it was mm -hmm. one of those things where, you know, you had a paper route and that was okay, but that wasn't a lot of money and you didn't have a lot to, you know, invest in, you know, trying to, to build something. And so, um, yeah, but I ended up working 14, in, uh, you know, a restaurant and then, um, you know, in college did a lot of, you know, different stuff in order to, to make cash. And I think, you know, it's funny, it wasn't my own venture, but one of the most kind of transformative, you know, work experiences I've had was actually, mm -hmm. I worked, I worked for Starbucks for about five years. Oh yeah. And, um, yeah, this was back in like the last couple of years of high school and the first couple of years of college. And I, it, it's, you know, it's kind of like a retail job or, or, you know, kind of a food job, but what was really fascinating about it is like the amount of reps that I got speaking to people, um, you know, especially when they were aggravated because they didn't have their coffee yet. Mm -hmm. And, that was something where I learned and it also was just a great company to work for in the States here. And it, I just learned so much about customer service and so much about, you know, what makes a customer happy and what doesn't. And that was just a, you know, an amazing experience for, for my, you know, my kind of trajectory into being, you know, an entrepreneur and a CEO. Yeah. If, if you worked there for five years, did you kind of grow in the ranks at Starbucks or? Uh, not really. I mean, I was a, I was a coffee master, which is not oh. a easy, easily received, um, honor. Uh, cause you have to do a bunch of like courses and stuff like that to learn about coffee. But I, I was, I was mainly just like a frontline person because really in order to be, and this was, what was kind of cool about Starbucks is that they give a lot of opportunities to people who, you know, aren't going to school and, and need like a full-time, you know, job, but one that pays well. And so, they normally favor people who, you know, their life is going to be trying to become a Starbucks manager or trying to be a retail manager of some sort. And so mm -hmm. most of the shift supervisors and most of the managers, at least when I was there, they were people who were kind of trying to rise the ranks of, of the Starbucks kind of hierarchy. And, you know, that it was one of those things that kind of aggravated me because I was like, oh, I can do this, I can do this. But in retrospect, it was actually really, really good not rising the ranks there because, it gave me, you know, enough flexibility to, you know, to, to focus on, I think what, which was important, which was like learning as much as humanly possible. Yeah. Yeah. So what was exactly your ambition and, uh, when you were doing all these jobs? 
I think when, when I first went to school or when I was in high school, I, I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to be a doctor because, you know, it's kind of the traditional, like you come from a poor family. They want you to be a doctor or something that's, you know, mm-hmm. very safe, secure, and makes a good amount of money. And I think that uh, I, I quickly learned, particularly in high school, that I didn't, um, I wanted to specifically be a cardiovascular surgeon, but oh. I went I went to this uh you know, kind of, uh, um, and it was funny. And now that I'm thinking about it, I, I remember actually that's what, you know, in, in kindergarten and first grade, when you write down what you want to be, I don't know why, but I latched on to cardiovascular surgeon, like not like doctor, not like, but like that was the one thing I wanted to work with hearts. But yeah. when I got into high school and I did this like shadowing where you go and you visit a doctor, or a couple doctors and just learn from them as like a kid who wants to be a doctor. And I remember they were doing a, um, they were basically doing this like cath um, where they go in through the leg into the heart and yeah. you know either spray some dye or like move some plaque and stuff. And I remember looking at the screen, I wasn't actually looking at the heart or anything, but I was looking at a, basically a video heart. And I was like, Oh, like I got lightheaded. I was like, Oh, I can't, <laughs> I come yeah. down, like immediately it saved my, myself a ton of time and money. Cause I was like, Oh, this is not going to work out. <laughs> so anyways, but I, I and then in, in college, I wanted to be a lawyer because I, I went to school, I went to the school I went to on a debate scholarship. Um, so I, uh, it was one of those things where I was in doing debate, you know, for about 40 hours a week, um, you know, the mm-hmm. whole four years to, to basically earn my scholarship. And um, I thought I wanted to do that. And as I got closer and closer to kind of the government and law and these types of things, um, and then when I went and worked for the government, it was one of those things where I was just like, oh, I don't like dealing with bureaucracy. I finally realized that like bureaucracy is literally the worst thing I ever want to deal with. Um, and so that's what kind of mm-hmm. started me getting closer and closer to tech. And so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, you know, grow up being, Oh, I want to go into business. I think I was pretty entrepreneurial just cause I needed to be, but it was one of those things in college. It wasn't like, Hey, I'm taking a bunch of business classes. I was an econ and math guy, which obviously helps with business, but it was one of those things where it wasn't, uh, wasn't like I, I grew up looking up to Steve jobs or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So did you study law or economics? So I studied economics. And so, economics, okay. um, yeah, in the States, you, there are some programs that are pre-law, but in the States, it's, it's mainly your, your undergrad doesn't necessarily, like you don't need to take any courses in, in college to go to law school. Um, mm-hmm. those specific courses, you basically, they look at your transcripts and then they look at your score on the LSAT, which is like an entry level exam. But yeah, I studied economics and math. Um, with some political science and some rhetoric mixed in there as well. Yeah. So you wanted to be a surgeon, you, you tried law stuff, but didn't like it. You studied economics and ended up in more engineering stuff. Uh, more math than anything. Yeah. Just yeah. more. Um, I would never, I would, I would never consider myself an engineer. It was a, that was one of those things. I think now if I went back, I'd be like, Oh, why didn't I study engineering? Yeah. It was uh one of those things where I was like, Oh, I don't even know what those guys do. Like it was when I was very naive about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, you ended up in tech, so you, 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 you end up in a sort of engineering space, I guess. Yeah, totally. Well, and I, I learned to, when I worked um, in the Intel community and, and at Google, I, I, I was never an engineer, but I learned how to use like Python and a bunch of other scripting um, in order to, you know, deal with data sets. And, and when I was in school, I obviously learned like some of things like SPSS and some of the mm-hmm. tools to do. But 
yeah, it's one of those things where I, I the way I describe it is like, you know, I'm, I'm data technical. I'm not, you know, I'm never going to be a full stack engineer, at least as of right now. But it's one of those things where I, uh, you know, I'm pretty nimble with scripts when it comes to, to data manipulation. Yeah. Is there anything you, you learned in the intelligence community that you, you're, you're still using or? Nope, I can't share that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, there is plenty <laughs> there, but um, no, I, I think what was really funny is that, uh, you know, we spoke of the kind of transformative experiences in Starbucks, you know, whether mm -hmm. it sounds cool or not was, was pretty transformative. I think working for the Intel community was, was also equally transformative because I, there, it, I, you know, being, being kind of like a smart person and, and working with, you know, data and things like that in, in your college career, you know, it's great. But that was a job where basically within three months, like I had learned an insane amount about logic, about research, about frameworks, about mm -hmm. finding um, targeting and finding um, and thinking about a problem specifically. Um, I would say that that, that experience is the number one in terms of making me a, you know, an effective operator, um, you know, because it's, it's very, um, unemotional in a good way, meaning you, yeah. you try to stay as dispassionate about what is going on or the problem that you're facing as possible. And then from there really focusing in on understanding the causes and things like that of what a problem is or, or trying to figure out a problem. So yeah, I think that was, that was something that really helped me just how to think. And I think what mm -hmm. was great about it is it kind of, it capstones the, you know, cause in econ, you kind of learn that as well. And rhetoric, which I had studied and debate, you kind of learn the same things when it comes to argumentation. And so all of a sudden I had this like last piece of the puzzle to like really teach me how to think, um, which was mm -hmm. really effective for me. Yeah, you think you use that now at ProfitWell to for for all these metrics, etc. Yeah, I, I mean, I use it every day. I think it's one of those things where, you know, just yesterday we we're trying to solve a problem, and you know, we had one like one customer come in and say something, and the whole team was like, "Oh, we have to change." Not the whole team, but the whole this the sub team, I should say, mm -hmm. was like, "Oh, we should change this. We should change this." And I said, "Okay, let's let's hold on a second. Like, this is definitely something that might need to change, but let's think through the problem." Let's, let's look for the causes of the problem and let's validate or invalidate. It just, it just helps with that, that basic, um, you know, thinking through of, of mm -hmm. something that's coming up rather than kind of, like I said, just kind of going crazy with it. Yeah. What are your uh, ambitions with ProfitWell? Uh, in, in what sense? All senses or is there a specific? In all senses. Like, like where do you see this, this, this go? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, I, um, I'm very fascinated by problems. So admittedly, when I first started Price Intelligently, which is now ProfitWell, I, I was on this whole like, hey, I want to, you know, I want to make a million dollars. I want to make a bunch of money. And mm -hmm. I think what I quickly learned is if, if it's all about the money, there are much more effective ways to make money than by building a freemium SaaS business. Um, <laughs> so, and, and, you know, and, and, um, I think that what I really learned by starting to build this was I'm very fascinated by solving problems and then going after big problems. And mm -hmm. it doesn't mean I need to go cure cancer or it doesn't need to mean I, I need to go do those types of things. It's just, I need to like latch on to a problem and, and, and really go after it. And so for me in particular with ProfitWell, I think there's a, a, a fundamental 
uh, failure in how we think about how a subscription business should grow. And mm-hmm. I think that we as a community talk about this and, and, and basically get romantic about certain ways to grow and certain ways not to grow. And the way I like to think about it is with ProfitWell, I want to kind of find the unified theory of, of subscription growth. And what mm-hmm. that means is basically, you know, we need insight from top of the funnel all the way through engagement data. And based on having that and, and doing that across a very wide swath or a very wide percentage of the subscription space, I can start taking that, that knowledge and basically creating really, really good products to help people grow better. Mm-hmm. Because a lot, of the, a lot of the tools that we use are, are what I like to call workflow or framework tools where the onus is on you as an operator to go figure out and become a master at customer success, at PPC, at all of these different pieces. And I just don't Mm -hmm. think that's a good idea and I don't think that's effective because I think that you should be a master at your customer and at your product. That's the thing that you do best or should do best in your business. And all this other stuff, you should either you know, outsource to people who know what they're doing, or you should use smart tools. And unfortunately, just smart tools don't exist quite yet. And so that's, that's what it really comes down to. I think there is a unified theory of subscription growth and, and we're, we're on a mission to find it. Yeah. So basically you want to make very strong uh, subscription products or uh, you want to help subscription products that are having stronger relationships with their customers or... Yeah, I think, I mean, this, this goes a little bit deeper, but I think, frankly, we want to also do this in a way where it's completely anti-active usage. So what mm-hmm. I mean by that is, I, I think that I, I don't want to help you have a stronger relationship with your customer in the sense of creating a better help desk, right? No. Or a better, yeah, like stuff like that. I want to basically say, like, let's talk about retain for a second. With retain right now, I can go, listen, you have this problem. I can see it in your numbers or you can see it yourself in your numbers. It's a really big and important problem and it's mechanical. We're really, Mm -hmm. really good at solving that mechanical problem. You can just turn it on and we automatically reduce that problem and take it away. That's the type of product that I like building um, and that we like building because overall that type of product is, is something where we have a over-indexed amount of expertise compared to our customers and it allows us to be the best in the world at it and allows you to not have to worry about it because we got your back essentially. So yeah. that's kind of how, how I like to think about product. I think that's where a lot of SaaS products should and are going, which is mm-hmm. either it's really in your workflow or it's just removing a problem completely from, from you. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, we're actually trying to do both. Like we're, we're trying to be with Salesflare in the workflow and we're trying to go more and more into a space where we, uh, where we use data to help people as well and remove a problem. But I can see that you're totally in that other space, like taking, taking the problem away and you just turn on profit well, uh, we pay profit well and, and things just go away, right? The problem just yep, dissolves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's very nice. Cool. Even- even about workflow products like you're creating with, with Salesflare, it's, and then this is, this is what's really cool about what you guys are doing, which is it's, it's, I can't talk to the customer for you. Like maybe mm-hmm. one day, 
right? Like that's what you're saying to your customer. Maybe one day we're going to do the actual sales for you in a very cool way, but probably not because relationships are something that are so important. Mm-hmm. But I can take away all of these little bits that you shouldn't worry about. The data, yeah. all of this little stuff that takes time and money, like that exactly. you shouldn't have to worry about and, and you can be better at than, than your actual customers, which is great. Yeah, yeah, fully agree. Uh, are you planning to raise money with ProfitWell? So I think right now we are not planning on raising cash. So we're fully no. bootstrapped. Um, we're about 45 people. So we're, we're kind of, you know, we, money, as I like to say, money is not the limiting, the limiting step or the limiting factor right now in our business. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's one of those things where we, we have plenty of problems. Don't get me wrong, but, um, but I, we're also not, I mean, some bootstrappers are very, um, uh, kind of, chip on their shoulder about funding. They're very much like, Oh, we're never going to do that. We're never going to do this. Like how mm-hmm. these, these are terrible. And, and we're not like that at all. I think money's a tool, right? It's just like a CRM or it's just like other things where mm-hmm. it helps you do your job better depending on what you're trying to do. And so I think the, the circumstances through which we'll raise money are if we have um, a direct need in terms of understanding our unit economics so good that we can just, crank um, and just need to throw money on the, the, the top of the, the funnel or yeah. um, if we just all of a sudden have some crazy competition and we have some, some pretty good competition, but it's one of those things where it's not a, uh, it's not a reasonable competition. No, no. And you don't need the money right now. So you can just stay self-funded and make yeah, your own totally. decisions. Yeah. And it, it gives us a lot of optionality. I mean, I'm a big fan of optionality. I think that's, you know, something I picked up on when I was, you know, working, you know, in the intelligence community where, you know, having optionality is something that's super, super important. Mm-hmm. That's funny. I actually, uh, I had a, uh, a talk with Luia Chopat, uh, one of the previous talks, and he also talked yeah. about the concept of optionality, uh, where he always likes to uh, build scenarios that keep different options open and never really commits to one scenario that needs to happen. Right. Yeah. I think, yeah. And I think that, I mean, I think that can be dangerous, right? Like, and it's really, you have to be really careful about what optionality you choose, right? Because Mm -hmm. you can, you can, uh, protect optionality to the point where you basically do nothing, right? Because you're, you're like, I can't make a decision because I, I want, you know, I, I want the ability to make a decision later. And I think for us, it's more the way we think about it is um, there are certain decisions and in, in, in one like raising money where if you're not feeling the pressure or actually let me, I can summarize this a lot more succinctly. I think yeah. it just means basically, you know, don't doing, don't do something just to do something, um, mm-hmm. you know, have intent and, and once you are going to do something, go all in, right? And, and so for us, it's, it's, we're all in on bootstrapping right now. And, you know, that might not be the right decision. And we're always tracking the data and tracking whether that's the right decision. And eventually, we'll, we'll get to a point where it's like, maybe, hey, this, this makes sense. And then we're going to go all in on funding. But we'll, we'll see how long that takes. Yeah, cool. Well, what is it that you uh, spend most of your time on right now at ProfitWell? So most of my time is being spent on kind of building the marketing team. Mm-hmm. So we haven't had a team up until I think I just mentioned this before a few months ago. Um, then we mm-hmm. literally just hired our, our first growth manager, um, not even a month ago. And so uh, it's been something where we've been cranking and, and really, really just kind of pushing things forward. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's, 
yeah, it's one of those things where we're, we're constantly kind of reevaluating, you know, what we should be doing and, um, you know, how we can best build the team from, from the right structure. Um, and then I'm doing all the classic, uh, you know, CEO stuff, you know, making sure the trains run on time and, you know, making sure that unlock problems and things like that. Yeah. Got it. Oh, how, how did, did ProfitWell grow then actually before you had a marketing team? Yeah, that's, yeah, you're telling your guess is as good as mine. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so I think it's, uh, it's one of those things where, um, <coughs> we have essentially always been a content shop. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is we, we basically really early on, um, mainly because it, it, frankly, it was because we were trying to figure out a lot of this stuff, you know, not only pricing, but you know, different, different problems to solve within a business. We just started writing mm-hmm. and, you know, we started writing posts that weren't very, um, I call them the bottom of the top of the funnel, meaning we were, there were, there were things that if you cared about it, you would find it. Um, mm-hmm. they weren't, they weren't like, Hey, this is what it's like building a company or here's this founder story. They were very, Hey, this is, this is how discounts affect this, you know, that type of stuff. And yeah. what that allowed us to do is, is, is frankly just, you know, learn as much as humanly possible. Um, and then, uh, from there that allowed us to really kind of get a good niche hold on the market because, we only wrote posts that were pretty in depth. Uh, I think we've written one kind of fluffy post in the past like four or five years and it did really well. And it like bothered me that it did so well because it was a really fluffy post. What do you mean um, with a fluffy so, post? Well, we did like a quote wrap up, like, Hey, here are six quotes on pricing. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, this is crap. This is terrible. Cause like one of the quotes was from Fergie. One of the quotes was from like, like people had nothing to do with software. And I, I told the person who was doing it, I was like, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And then it worked really well. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, so we were like, Oh crap. And, and it's, it's important obviously to have diverse content. And so that's why, you know, for the longest time we were able to really grow with, with just this deep seated content. And, um, then when we launched profit, well, it was kind of a similar story where we were just writing, writing more, but we were kind of diversifying our content a bit, not just talking about pricing. And now we're, we're being very, again, we're, we're going all in. So we're, we're basically going all in on a specific content strategy that we've been developing, um, and, and really building out the team. And then from there, uh, based on that, it's allowing us to, um, you know, start to grow, you know, the numbers and all that kind of fun stuff. So that's kind of a, a tangential answer to your question, but yeah. yeah, it's kind of how we were growing. Yeah. And if you say we were writing, was that you and someone else or? Well, in the early days, yeah, I like to, I, I always hate using the word I, um, mm-hmm. you know, and every time I say like, oh, I, I like this or I do this, I, I cringe a little bit because it's always, you know, the collective mm-hmm here. And, um, but in the early days it was just me cause it was just me working on the, it was just me working on the company. And so, um, I was the one writing everything. I was the one distributing everything. And, uh, about a couple of years ago we did start, um, basically bringing on other writers. And so we've had writers now for a couple of years, but I still do a lot of writing, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because it's both cathartic as well as, um, you know, very, it's, it's kind of how I think and how I learn. Um, yeah. It's kind of like the, I don't know if there's a phrase, but I've, I've heard of this where, you know, if you don't know something, figure out how you can teach it. 
because mm-hmm. once you can teach it, then you've maybe not necessarily mastered it, but you've at least gotten the the learnings down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you, do you actively make time for writing during the day or? Uh, so I, I normally, what I'll do is, uh, it, I'm, I'm a very like zone writer, if that makes sense. Meaning I have mm-hmm. to kind of be in, in the zone and, and it's really hard to do that when you're, you know, handling a thousand little paper cut issues, um, in a business. And so it's one of those things where I, I do make time, but then I'll always have, um, like stubs, I call them, um, which is story mini outlines that are maybe incoherent and like little lines here and there that I think would be mm-hmm. really good for a post. I always have a bank of those going. Um, and normally those come like when I'm running or when I'm working out um, or when I'm just walking around Boston and I'll just like in my phone be like, oh, that's a really good idea. Let me write that down. Yeah. And then what I'll do is I'll, I'll take that bank and basically stub out the outlines and then set aside time to actually just write like five or so of those posts. Because when you, when you kind of get into the, you know, I, I don't know how much you write in particular. I've, I've mm-hmm. actually really, I shared your GDPR post around cause I thought it was, Thanks. Really but it was, um, it was one of those things where when I write, it's it kind of like building momentum. So the first post is yeah. never going to be that great, but then like the second, the third, the fourth, <laughs> fifth one are really good. And then you can go back to the first one and fix it. Yeah. It's like a day you, you, you reserve for writing. Yeah, yeah. Normally it's on the weekends too, which are a little bit chiller and, you know, can work on. Yeah. How does a normal day for you look like? Terrible. Um, no. Terrible. <laughs> so uh, the last couple of months have been really bad um, because I have been... So there's this this thing where... And this is how I explained it to someone who was like, oh man, like how's it going? You seem like you're you know, stressed and working a lot. And what I explained to, to her was that there's, there's two types of work. I mean, if you had to categorize mm-hmm. certain work, there's strategic work and mechanical work, and they're both very taxing, meaning like the strategy of how you're going to set up your AdWords campaigns. And then there's the mechanical work of actually putting your AdWords campaign in the account. And the past couple of months, because we've been building this team up and I've been really hands-on, it's mm-hmm. been both strategic and mechanical work, being mostly on the same day. So I've been working like like insane hours, like 17 hours a day. Um, I've been in the office for midnight. I've been sleeping in the office. But it's also one of those things where what's kind of cool about it is I love it. Like I love what I'm doing. So it gets exhausting and it does catch up to me. And, and normally like Saturdays and like even tonight on Friday, I'm just going to crash and not do anything. But um, yeah, I think it's it's one of those things where you I don't have to do those things and I don't have to do that. And we probably would get the same results sadly. But I think it's one of those things where I just really love what I'm doing right now. And so yeah. just like, you know, I, I don't, you know, I sit down, I'm working on something and I look up four hours later and I'm like, oh my gosh, how much time has passed? And I've created yeah. four hours worth of work, which is great. But it's been one of those things where it's just been back to the grind, which haven't been, haven't been on this much of a grind in a while, which is mm-hmm. you know, bad. How long are you now working on ProfitWell? Uh, in terms of, what do you mean? No, how long, like, uh, when did you start? Oh, how long is probably, yeah. So the whole company, we started the first product, Price Intelligently, five and a half years ago now. Oh, okay. And then Profit, well, maybe it was six years. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's going to be six years in June. So 20, June of 2012, June 15th, 2012, I quit my 
or that was my last day at my other job. Yeah. Um, and then, um, yeah, then it was like nine months of just me. And then we hired Peter, who's our GM and he's been here ever since. Um, mm-hmm. and so, and then ProfitWell came, I think the idea for ProfitWell came four years ago. Um, mm-hmm. and the first MVP was shortly thereafter. And so, yeah, I've just been, just been cranking from there. Yeah. And, and still working that hard. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it, it goes, it ebbs and flows. I just think that mm-hmm. for me, it's, you know, it's not always going to be like that, but I learned very early on and I think it's given like the blue collar background and those types of things that um, it, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, I'm going to be working hard. So when mm-hmm. I was at Google, like I would actually get, not yelled at, but I would definitely get kind of reprimanded for how much I was working because they're <laughs> like work-life balance and all those types of things, which is great. Don't get me wrong. It's like, it's amazing. Yeah. But I just found myself like working on things. And, and sometimes it's just reading and sometimes it's just researching and sometimes it's, you know, it's not always like strenuous work constantly. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I could work, you know, digging ditches for 17 hours a day. Obviously that would be a lot more taxing, but um, it is one of those things where, you know, I, I, if I love what I'm doing, which I really do love what I'm doing, especially on the marketing side right now, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I can, I can work that long and, and, you know, be happy and it does catch up. Don't get me wrong. So it compounds and by the weekend I'm absolutely dead and, you know, don't really do anything on the weekend except rest. But it is one of those things where it's a, it's a labor of love. Yeah. Do you have a wife and or kids or? If I had kids, this would not work. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I don't have a wife. I have a kind of a, a partner. I mean, we've been together for, gosh, it'll be three years in May. And she's mm-hmm. also has a pretty good, um, you know, she does commercial real estate, which is not a, uh, it's not a nine to five job, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. And so um, we, we're pretty aligned. And, and I was very upfront when we started dating. I was like, listen, like, and this is when I wasn't working as much, but I was still working very hard. I was like, Hey, like, this is a specific point in my life where I'm you know, trying to build this. And, you know, she's, she's, we've been on the same page ever since, which is great. And, um, right yeah. now, since the last three months have been very, very, um, you know, strenuous kind of building this, this, this up. Um, mm-hmm. we have a, a basic agreement where she gets, um, or we get, I should say one night a week. Um, and then one weekend day where uh, my phone's off and we're, we're just, you know, it's just us and our dog. Um, yeah. but, and it doesn't mean, and I know that sounds crazy. It doesn't mean I'm not like home, you know, I go home and you know, we, we we still have some other nights during the week, but it's one of those things where I just wanted to protect that time. Um, and I don't, I don't foresee this pace, um, you know, lasting terribly long. I think mm-hmm. my, my mid year will have enough people on this team that, um, and the processes will be in place enough that it'll, it'll relax a little bit, or at least it'll be a lot more manageable, but it's just kind of a nature of the, the position in the business. Yeah. So currently it's like full on, uh, working, sleeping, Or are there any other things you do next to this? Like, like what do you like to spend your time on when you're not working? Uh, I can't even think of that right now. No. So, (laughs) um, no, I would say, I mean, when, when I do have time, I really like working with my hands. Um, so what's kind of funny is in the office we have, um, we we're bootstrapped. And so this kind of works, works out well where we've built a lot of the stuff in the office So mm-hmm. we built these barriers to, to kind of for sound protection. Um, we built, I, I built the call rooms. Um, so we built a f- couple of mm-hmm. call rooms. 
Um, and, uh, you know, so it, I, I really like that type of work because it's a very different style. Like, you know, how we talked about strategic and mechanical work. Well, that work is, is completely different because it's more tactile. Like you're using your hands. I mean, there's still a lot of strategy and still a lot of mechanics, but it's just a very different type of mechanics than the building software products. And so, um, I think I get like a similar feeling that a computer scientist or engineer would get where, you know, it's like, Oh, I built this thing, you know, and this is good or this is bad. And, um, so I really like doing that type of stuff. Um, and then mm-hmm. right now, honestly, I'm trying to, while all this insanity is going on, I'm trying to get back in shape. Um, I have definitely sacrificed my personal health. Um, saying sacrifice makes it me sound more of like a martyr, but I think it's more like I've definitely, uh, you know, chosen to, uh, you know, forego yeah. like really caring about my health the past five, six years. And I've, I've gained a ton of weight since starting the company. And so I'm trying yeah. to get that, uh, that in check. You're going to start sporting again soon or? Yeah, I, it's, it's, I mean, I do, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good about it a few times a week, but now like just really trying to get my like nutrition in check. And, um, thankfully we're in a good place where I can, um, you know, I can at least do that. And, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm on the right track. We'll say I'm not quite mm-hmm. there yet. Yeah. Now imagine there there wouldn't be profit. Well, you 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 sold it for a ton of money. Um, how would you spend your life? Oh, I frankly like I can't imagine not working. Um, so I think for me that and this is what's you know a, a terrible not a terrible thing but a scary thing too about the company, which is you know, I, I, the, the work addiction, if you will, is, is, is basically moving me to a place where I, uh, you know, we might not sell because, or we might not do something because we're like, Oh, well, it's really, you know, what else are we going to do? Right. Um, and, but I, I will say that there's some other ideas that, um, I've thought of, or I think are really interesting. Um, and also are a little bit more, you know, you would need a successful exit in order to work on them. And so I think Mm -hmm. if, if, we, um, uh, if, and when we sold, I think I would commit to taking, um, kind of like a minimum of six to nine months off and, and just force myself. Even if I was like, Oh, I want to start working on something else. I would just make myself do that. Um, even if it's a, even if we fail, like even if we have to shut down, I'm still going to try to, you know, tap into my savings in order to take that time off just to reset my palate, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think I would dig into, um, one thing that's really fascinating to me is, um, you know, as is, you know, to a lot of people is kind of like how we do elections in this world, um, particularly Mm -hmm. the United States. And I think that what I would love to do is, is lower the barrier to entry, um, to running for office in the States, because I think Mm -hmm. that's, if you think of the, the problems that we have with our elections, um, they're the, the most logical conclusion, um, if you take it to its nth degree is that the, the money is really where the power is. And, mm-hmm. um, we can say like, Oh, in the perfect world, you know, we would, we wouldn't have that problem. We would pass laws to do it, but there's, it's, it's like water. You can't, you can't tap water pressure. You know, it's something that's going to come out. Like money is going to flow somehow. Mm-hmm. So I think that you know, the way I think about it is I would love to reduce the, the amount of cash it takes to run for office. And the way you do that is through, you know, basically better targeting, better understanding of the electorate, et cetera, because the reason that people use money in the States for elections is to basically to sell ads, you know, in order to, to, you know, convince 
their uh, their constituencies to to vote for them. And so I want to make that more efficient because I think if we lower that barrier, you get better candidates. And if you have better candidates, theoretically, um, you would essentially have a a better a better government. And so that's something I think about a lot, kind of mm-hmm. going back to the debate days and and the the lawyer aspiration days. Yeah, don't you think that if um, if this technology would be available to target the ads better, that the candidates with a lot of money would also use it? Oh, absolutely. But I think that the there, there's only so much saturation that you can have in an election, right? Meaning, mm-hmm. only so many days that you can advertise, and there's only so many ways you can advertise, and so. With that, um, and, and this is just like business, like there's only so many ways we can advertise now, there's more density in the market for selling software. And so mm-hmm. for me, I think that if you lower that barrier, it's never gonna be zero, right? You're still gonna have to garner enough money to run. But I think the other thing is that the the way that these ads and the way the polls work, and we saw this in the latest presidential election, it's 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 very archaic. Um, mm-hmm. It's not great. I mean, it's good. It's it's basic statistical models and advanced statistical models, but the inputs into those models aren't right anymore um, because of a whole host of technological factors. And I think if we can put better inputs into those models um, and better have better models, we can then you know you know if if let me put it this way, if we get you know, right now to run for Senate, which is our, um, uh, our, our upper house of our, of our legislature, you, you need to raise a significant amount of money every single week that you're in office, like a million mm-hmm. dollars a week. It's like crazy amount of money. And most, there's some people who've gotten appointed because someone left or someone got promoted or something like that. And people ask them like, Hey, are you going to run, run for reelection? And most of the time their response is like, I can't because I can't raise as much money as required. Mm-hmm. And so if, if we can lower that barrier, theoretically, even if it improves by a factor of two or a factor of three, you all of a sudden have, you know, a better pool and, and we don't get into these situations where, you know, things are so crazy um, or they're not as crazy, I should say. Yeah. Would you consider going into politics yourself or is only empowering other people? Uh, I don't know. I, I think that um, every time I see an election, I'm kind of like disenchanted with that type of life. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that there's there are a lot of injustices that I really care about, but I think at this point, I am I'm too much of a moderate to to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly just because, like you know, I when I look at you know. Uh, you know, a crazy liberal person or a crazy conservative person espousing some views, I can look Mm -hmm. at both of them and say, oh, this, this part of your point I think is really good. And this part of your point is terrible. I can do that for both of them. And unfortunately that, uh, that logic just isn't really rewarded, um, at least as of right now, but, but maybe if, if we are able to lower that barrier, it, it'll make it, make it more of an interesting, uh, interesting journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a big issue in politics now as well, I guess that the extremes get just too much attention. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know what it's funny is it's, it's not to sound like a, like a Trump supporter, which I'm not, but it's, it is really the media's fault. Uh, not, not liberal media, not conservative media, but both media, because if you look at what happened, um, I don't know how much you know about us politics, but since 1994 mm-hmm. and then with the birth of the internet, um, and, and we're seeing a lot of this right now in the last election cycle where basically people are, um, 
you know, the, the extreme view gets rewarded, right? Because it's, it's sensationalist. It's almost like a tabloid where, oh, this is going to sell headlines. This is going to sell papers. And I think what, what ends up happening is now every, anyone has a voice. Like a little blog can break a major story, which, which is great for a lot of reasons. But mm-hmm. we, we didn't get the fourth estate that we were promised, which was, hey, we're going um, to have so much information and so much access that the, the, the crazy ideas are going to be clearly shown that they are crazy and wrong and the good ideas are going to rise to the top. We have an inverse happening where the, the bad ideas are rising to the top. And so yeah. um, I think that says a lot about people because if this stuff didn't work, people wouldn't... Um, you know, people wouldn't do it. And so we're, we're kind of rewarding it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I think that, you know, if we assume that, you know, human nature is going to stay constant, which it, you know, will, and there's, there's not a lot of, you know, success showing that it won't. Um, but if we make that assumption, then what ends up happening is, is we put ourselves in a place where, okay, well, if that assumption is true, then what's, you know, what can we do around it? And that's where like my econ background comes in. It's like play within the rules of the game. What are the rules mm-hmm. of the game? The rules of the game are human nature are like this. You're not going to cap money. I mean, you might make some caps, but you're never going to get all the mud, money out of politics, at least in the States. And mm-hmm. based on those two factors, like how do we still fix this problem? And we fix this problem by working within the system and we're with working within human nature um, and basically just making people more effective. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm actually both a U.S. citizen and a Belgian citizen. Because uh, my oh, parents cool. are Belgian, but I'm born in the U.S., um, so I can vote in both That's countries. Amazing. And I must say that in the U.S., politics go much more to the extremes than in Belgium. Like we have it here as well. Uh, there's parties uh, supporting the extremes, but it's just so much more extreme in the U.S. Uh, yeah. And that's kind of scary. Uh, I always feel that the U.S. is a bit ahead in the, in that respect. Uh, and that, that other countries here in Europe will, will also go that way. Uh, well, and what's, I think what's, what's insane and what's scary is that like, for, for definitely worse, like the world would probably be better if this didn't happen. But with World War II, like it made Europe really sensitive to some of these extremes, right? And so mm-hmm. I think that in the U.S., like we we've been very insulated. Like since the civil war, there really hasn't been a war fought on our land. Right. And, and we haven't, I mean, we definitely fought in wars, but not ones that we felt and not like demagogues that we felt. And so, um, I think that's, it's going to probably get or stay consistent, at least in the States and in Europe, I think you're, you're right. It's going to, it's, we're starting to forget what happened only 50 years ago, yeah. um, you know, with Berlusconi and the Brexit movement and, and all of these things might be, might be okay. Right. Because from a philosophical standpoint, um, I'm a big fan of, of the will of the people, but mm-hmm. I think that, um, it's, it's, it's when the media aspect or the, the, the time span of content that is published interferes with the will of the people, then, then you have problems. And so that's, that's what's kind of scary is we're, 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 we're not handling the reciprocals of time in Europe in particular. And you're, you're exactly right. You're starting to see the rise of some of these things. And you know, hopefully it doesn't have to get so bad that we pull it back or hopefully technology catches up to, to basically mm-hmm. improve it. Yeah. I guess it's also a matter of scale. Like in the US, the, these kind of problems directly have a big scale. While in, in Europe, it's, 
it's one country at a time, which are much, much smaller. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I don't know. We'll solve, we'll solve all the problems in the world one day. Cool. Right? That's what yeah. we'll do. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah. But if, if more of us, and that's, what's interesting is like, I think that, um, so I, I knew, uh, uh, Aaron Swartz a bit here in the States who was mm-hmm. a, a big advocate for, um, the dissemination of problem or, or knowledge and things like that. And I think that the one thing I learned and, and we weren't like, I, I had met him a few times. I had, you know, we weren't friends or anything like that, but what the one thing I had learned by observing his story and, and just basically being in his presence more was basically that we have a lot of skills um, and a lot of really, really powerful ideas in the tech community. And it's really important to apply those things to marketing automation and, and building a business. Like, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of value there and it's going to make us you know, have a good living. But there's a lot mm-hmm. of things that we can be doing either just through conversations or through building technology eventually or when we've quote-unquote made it, dedicating time or money to these other things that are going to, you know, not make the world a better place in the sense of curing cancer, but are going to make the world a better place by just making people's lives easier. And I think we need to dedicate more time to that in in general. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Slowly wrapping up, um, what was the latest good book you've read and why did you choose to read it? Was it about politics or was it about something else? No, I actually read uh, Radical Candor. Have you heard of that one? No. So it's uh, it's a book. The, the woman, she worked at Google. Um, and uh, it, it was just a really good book on communication because mm-hmm. we're, we're at 45 people. We're starting to reach this size where, um, and we already had this, but like there's definitely different personalities and we want different personalities in the office. And um, so basically the reason I picked this up is because um, frankly, we have one executive who is um, very, very direct. You know, if he mm-hmm. likes something or doesn't like something, um, he's he's not going to sugarcoat it, and you know, he's he's going to tell you, and he's going to be respectful. But but for some people who are more like sensitive, it, it comes off aggressive, right? And then we have another exec in the office who is um, like everything comes off positive. Even when he's giving you, you know, negative feedback, it's almost like, oh, he actually liked what I did, but he wanted me to tweak it a bit. In reality, mm-hmm. he's trying to say, this was really bad. It can't happen again, but he's not quite saying that. And I'm being, I'm explaining it a, a little bit more dramatically than reality. But and, mm-hmm. and this book really kind of bridges the gap of like, how should you be giving feedback? How should you be com- communicating? And, and the idea is radical candor, which is um, on a very basic level, I'm not going to do it justice. Um, you know, making sure your team knows you're in a really good place, but not sugarcoating things and making sure yeah. they realize that this is good or this is bad. Um, cause you don't want to leave ambiguity with those types of things. So, so how, how does it work? You kind of make them feel that they can make mistakes, but still, uh, when they do, you honestly communicate about it. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's for some people, this is going to come off super obvious, but what I found at least, and, and this isn't necessarily the core of the principle, but it's at least a nice little tactic that came from it mm-hmm. is when I'm about to give someone feedback, I, I, I make them feel, or I attempt to make them feel safe, which I know sounds kind of wishy-washy, but for example, mm-hmm. I'll be like, Hey, I know, I know your, your heart was in a really good place. You did this really quickly. Um, but this can't happen again, this part, mm-hmm. right? Like we can't do this. And it, it, even that little tweak, um, it helps even mildly, um, 
you know, not soften the blow necessarily, but it helps like, it helps basically show the person, at least this is the theory that, hey, I know you're well-intentioned, but this was still Mm -hmm. bad, right? And I think a lot of people, when you're saying, hey, this is bad, their reaction is like, well, I'm trying, or I worked really hard Mm -hmm. on it or those types of things. And it it makes the the landing of that feedback really, really negative and really they they make it feel really personal because it's it's like, well, I I worked really hard on this and I thought about it. And it still can be bad, but it's it's one of those things where you're recognizing the the effort at least or that their heart was in place. Got it. That's really good, yeah. Is there anything you wish you you'd have known when you started out with ProfitWall? Um Oof. I think there's a lot of little things. I think, I think the biggest thing that I, I need to keep reminding myself that, you know, growth takes time, mm-hmm. um, you know, or just building takes time. Like this, this all takes time. And, and you want you, when you have a vision, you're like, well, the vision's there. Why isn't it, why isn't it happening? Like it's in my head, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's right there. Like why, why aren't we all on the same page? And I think it's just one of those things where it just takes, takes time. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing is that people are, not complicated necessarily, but mm-hmm. you, when something's in your head, it doesn't mean it's in someone else's head. And you saying it once doesn't mean that they get it or that it's in being imbued in their, their work. You have to keep repeating and you have to keep aligning the team essentially. Yeah. So it's about communicating and about patience. Yeah. Cool. Thanks again, Patrick, for being on Founder Coffee. Uh, it was really great to have you. Thanks, man. Yeah, this was great. I, uh, I normally don't get to talk about this type of stuff, so I appreciate it. <laughs> That's good to hear. That's it for this episode of Founder Coffee. We hope you liked it. Let the world know if you did. Thanks for listening, guys. 